Hi, I'm Donovan. And I'm Matt. And this is... Blacklight the Spotlight. Da, 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 la, la, da. <laughs> you don't like it? I can't say I'm a fan. Not today. Not this time. I just, all right. So when we were going to find this theme song, I was like, we'll find somebody to compose. And then the editing program I have just has all this canned music. I'm like, oh, this one's great. And I thought it was like groovy us walking down the street together. No, someone told me it sounded like a 70s porno. Actually, we, it does give me those vibes a little bit, but I'm also here for it. I support. When you sent them to me, I was like, wait. I'm proud of him. These all sound amazing. <laughs> Even if they give 70s porno vibes. But of, of course, of course. And it was so hard to come by back then. You had to like walk into a video shop and everything and be shamed. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are so excited. So last week, we had the incredible, incomparable PAX wrestler on the show, and they are a Philly artist and an advocate for all things non-binary, gender non-conforming, and trans in the Philadelphia theater community. Um, They're an incredible person, and we highly recommend you listen to them um, as a member of the LGBT plus community and as a person of faith, because PAX is also a big person of faith. There were many times where I, I I did, I felt like we were in church because they were saying these beautiful things that could be said from a pulpit about the human spirit and how to treat people kindly. And I'm just, it was beautiful. And then I felt like a curmudgeon because I can't speak that eloquently. Mm-hmm. Alexa, play Take Me to Church by Hosier. <gasps> so, ooh, should we sing it? One, two, three. <laughs> <Get out. laughs> but yeah, so we recommend you listen to it. Um, but this week we're excited because it's just the two of us hanging out. Yes. Ooh, buckle up y'all get ready. So today's episode is devoted to allyship. I'm so excited and nervous question mark, question mark for this episode. Um, we're going to break down effective ways to be an ally, ineffective ways to be an ally, uh, using two very different perspectives, myself and Matt. And we're also going to break down for you a couple of terms that kind of fall underneath this activism umbrella. And our hope is that this will give you the tools to check in with yourself and become clear about where exactly you exist on the spectrum. And um, I guess the final thing I can say about it is these conversations are not easy. They are often very messy. So uh, thank you for joining us. It's a lot. And, you know, no matter who you are, give yourself the patience and space to, to understand that mess. Uh, we, uh, so Donovan and I, as the listeners know, <laughs> maybe have known each other for what, five years, I think. Five years. Um, yeah. Five years. Crazy. And we recently didn't know we were taking this online class together in June with the Jen Waldman studio. And we saw each other in the virtual homeroom. We were like, oh my gosh, so cool. Um, so at that time, uh, you know, and trigger warning to those of our content warning to those of our listeners um, with, you know, everything in June, George Floyd had been killed. Yeah. And before we kind of launch into what exactly these words are, what they mean, I think something Matt kind of touched on that I just want to talk about was, you know, in the month of June, um, in the wake of George Floyd protests, in the wake of constant slaughters of Black people, um, I know I personally was struggling. And I think I was um, particularly struggling to find the integration of my artistry with my activism. And I I do credit both my amazing Black community and the JWS community with allowing me to get through that very dark period. Um, And I think a huge help was learning these terms and kind of learning the difference between the two and helping me get more clear about where I am in my own journey. So hopefully this, hopefully becoming specific about these words will do the same for you. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Donovan. And so what Jen Waldman did at that time, I think it was within the first class, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Where she spoke about, hi, these were my goals for June, but now everything has changed. And this is where I want my personal journey to go for setting goals for this class. And she explained how she had heard these terms somewhere explained differently. It's almost a step process that ally, advocate, and activist are not really interchangeable. So we've taken that and then we've added our own spin plus a fourth word. Mm-hmm. We, when we were creating this podcast, we're like, okay, well, we know we need to get to allyship. That's the goal. Um, but that many of our listeners are starting off that way. So we wanted to come up with a term. So for our purposes throughout this, this series, um, We're going to be using these four A's, but step one, which is a lot of our work, is the tools to being an apprentice, right? So this means someone who is learning. And that means if you're an apprentice on our show, you are seeking ways to better your allyship or better yourself to get to allyship. Like a Jedi Padawan, Donovan, but you don't know that because you don't watch Star Wars. That just fully went over my head. No, thank you. There's nine movies. I'm going to make you sit down with me and watch like one or two of them. I, that would be misery for me. Misery. Not all of them. Yeah, all of them. I don't do, I don't do the Star Wars, the Star Trek. No, thank you. Mm, We'll see. (laughs) So step two is being an ally. So to us, uh, Donovan and I, what's an ally? This is a person in a position of privilege who is still at the beginning of their journey towards activism and lifting up underrepresented communities. So an ally has started the work, which is great, and has also come to terms with their own privilege within oppressive power structures, such as the patriarchy or white supremacy. So this doesn't mean that like you've been doing this but you benefit from it no matter how good your moral code is. And that's, that's what privilege is. You know, it's not necessarily like I, I remember reading this amazing just quote from the time that privilege does, or white privilege, for example, does not mean that you, that your life hasn't been hard, but the color of your skin or whatever your privilege is, is just not one of the factors that is making your journey hard. Right. Allies are people mostly focused on listening, listening to their friends, and they are knowledgeable about the f- these uh, underrepresented groups and their histories that their friends belong to. You know, this also means that an, an ally can be somebody that that supports, for example, a black bookstore or goes to a, a gay bar. Well, that's, we'll talk more about straight people being in gay spaces, which mm-hmm. I am personally okay with, but I know a lot of friends are not. Um, but that's another episode, but meaning like <laughs> going to, but going to a, going to like a gay bar, you know, maybe for a happy hour and buying beer at that gay bar, supporting these, you know, underrepresented groups by buying the, from these businesses. So now an ally is not necessarily always a cisgendered straight white person. So one can be an ally for the black community, for the trans community. One can be an ally for women, um, et cetera, and so forth. But because allies are still in their early journey, um, they will make several missteps along the way, which we'll talk about later, but the missteps are important. So yeah, thank you for that. That's step two. Right? So you become an ally, you're one step further in your journey. The next step is being an advocate. Okay? So this is a person who, again, is in a position of privilege, that's important in these conversations, who is a little bit further along in their journey towards activism. So an advocate, unlike an ally, is someone who is taking actionable steps to fight for diversity, to fight for equity, to fight for inclusion of underrepresented groups. This action, these actionable steps can be anything like making donations, uh, fundraising for underrepresented groups, writing letters to their representatives, um, emailing or encouraging difficult conversations with production companies, with theater companies, whatever it may be. And then finally, 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 in this oftentimes long journey, one hopefully eventually gets to the place of being an activist. 
an absolute leader in uplifting and fighting for specific underrepresented communities. Um, allies and ac- advocates are people who are looking to activists to kind of lead the way. And when activists are leading, they do so in a way that is action-based and paves the way for meaningful change to happen. Not everyone gets to these steps of being an activist, um, you know, just because we all are on our own journeys. We all have different comfortability levels with being a leader. However, uh, you can still do your part in being an advocate and an ally and looking to the right activists for leadership. So Donovan, I think maybe the most difficult part, but also the best part of this podcast is finding that balance. Um, so full disclosure, when we were first talking about this um, and how we were going to format it, I wanted to do a, a like a vocabulary section or a terminology section at the beginning of each episode. Like this is our vocab corner, kids. And, uh, you know, while of course I thought that was a good idea, Donovan, please say why not? <sighs> so, yeah, I don't know. The, here's the thing. Um, I think I was talking about this um, with someone who's also a listener on the show, um, and they mentioned that it feels important for podcasts to have to be hosted by people who have differing opinions on stuff. Um, and I that felt very helpful for me to hear uh, because at the end of the day, though our missions are aligned in terms of who we want to uh, represent or who we want to do this for, I think maybe the reasons behind that are a little bit different. For me, everything I do in everything that I do is always going to be devoted to uplifting um, the underrepresented communities to which I belong, right? And for me, um, educating ignorant white people is not something that I have a lot of patience for. Uh, it's it's not my job, number one. And I worry about um, dumbing things down, for lack of a better word, uh, for people who are part of these underrepresented communities who have been doing the work, who are aware of the work that needs to be done. And in a way, kind of starting a podcast off by saying, and here are the difficult terms we're going to be explaining to you today, uh, can be a little condescending for people who already know um, what those words mean because they have those lived experiences. Right. Which I, which I appreciate so much about you and what I love about, I mean, I'm not going to get all lovey-dovey here, but I love about <laughs> our comfort level, both as friends and, and partners in this, in this endeavor to, to Mordor, but you won't get that reference either because of Lord of the Rings, which you don't No, want. I do know Lord of the Rings. I had to read The Hobbit in school. The fantasy world, man, it's problematic. Yes. And we'll be talking about Game of Thrones and all of its whiteness too. No, I don't need to rewatch it. Um, no, but I, well, actually super quick tangent. Now, do you know about children of blood and bone? I know you don't do fantasy. Have you read this book? No, I've never heard of that. Oh my gosh. Uh, her name is Toya Adeyemi, I think is her name. And she had this, this whole article saying, is this a new JK Rowling? <laughs> but that was before all this JK Rowling mm. trans stuff came about. Yeah. And she's, at the time she's only 25 and it essentially like is an intersection of black lives matter meets it's more, I see it more Lord of the Rings than Harry Potter, but she was being compared to JK Rowling. And I, I love the first book. Uh, this is a few years ago. I haven't read the second book yet. Um, so maybe that'll get you on the fantasy train, Donovan children of blood and bone. Look it up. We'll see. I'll, I will look it up for you, Matthew. I will. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, but to go back, I, I do. I really appreciate that that conversation and you being honest and upfront with me, because, of course, this was important to me, this podcast, for the most part, for underrepresented groups. But it was also important to me um, that those who might be from where I am in suburban Pennsylvania and don't know as many things and but want to know more. So I, you know, I really like this balance we found, which seems like, oh, if a term happens to come up, you know, that or if something that people might not know a lot about. Sure, we talk about it. But then we encourage the listeners to really, okay, cool. We talked about these one or two things. Go do the rest of the research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our listeners at this point are about 
half, 50% belonging to underrepresented groups, and the other half, people trying to be better allies, and many, like Donovan and myself, find ourselves in both camps. Um, So I just, that's kind of been a fun journey in itself, prepping for this. Yeah, so these conversations, like I said, they are messy, they are not easy, and this conversation doesn't end here. These are, uh, it's kind of the through line of everything that we're doing with the podcast. So rest assured that we are going to continue revisiting this topic, perhaps ad nauseum as part of the podcast. And um, something we mentioned again, and I think it just bears reiterating, is that we can only ever speak to our own experiences. So while we're not necessarily going to be discussing allyship for groups we don't belong to, hopefully you can take the discoveries and the insight we're sharing with you and apply it to your own sense of allyship. Yeah. And that's why we have the guests. Yes. Amen. Excellent. So (laughs) now that we've gone to great lengths (laughs) to kind of set this up, Matt and I are not good at um, being brief. Wait, that is on the record that you just said we and not I. Okay. I will say, I will say I'm not good at it. You are far worse at it. Yeah, Matt, I love a novel. I love a good novel um, in terms of like writing them out text-wise. But Matthew loves writing 500 novels. (laughs) Oh my God. But anyways, we are now going to launch kind of into things. So to start, I'm just going to talk about... um, my experience as a member, as a Black woman, as a member of the Black community, and some discoveries I've made in terms of how to and how to not be an ally for us. And I think, again, I just, I can't say this enough. Um, I think this really bears repeating is that we are not a monolith. So I am only speaking from my own perspective if ever I say, if ever I say, you know, black people feel this, please take it with a grain of salt. Uh, and I think before we go any further, we're going to talk about some of these self-identifying terms that we brought up. So uh, ally, advocate, activist, apprentice. Uh, I think I mentioned that our definition might be a little bit different than the definition you've been working with as one of our listeners. Um, what I find is that White liberals in particular just love, love, love to automatically call themselves allies. And Matt, you kind of spoke to that by saying, um, oh, I have a black friend. I'm an ally, you know, and you're not, I know you were saying that kind of (laughs) being sarcastic, but you're not the first person that I've seen who literally has that mindset. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think too often it gives me the context of, oh, you know, I I can't be racist because I have a black friend. And it's just, it's so cringy. And it's almost as bad as white people who self-identify as being woke. I'm like, where does that come from? How did you decide that? How did you decide that you were woke or an ally? You know, did you decide for yourself or were you literally told that by a person from an underrepresented group? I can see you at a party. (laughs) This is my friend, Matt. He is woke. Never. Mm -mm. I think, I mean, just the term woke in general, I feel like is getting so much, it's almost becoming a parody of itself. Um, And if you're someone who decided it for yourself, what did you do? What did you literally do to come to that observation? I don't know anyone who uses the term in the year 2020 and is not being ironic about it. it. Yeah, it's almost, not that it has a bad connotation, but- It's just people have been misusing it and throwing it around too easily to the Mm. point where, yeah, it's become a parody. But anyways, I think um, just kind of putting myself, using myself as an example, even though, you know, as so I grew up in a theatrical background. I'm from New Orleans. I'm from a very creative city, have always had a creative kind of upbringing. Ever since I can remember, the majority of my friends have been gay and queer. That is what I grew up around. That is what I've always been around. Even so, even though that's the case, that does not automatically make me an ally for the LGBTQ plus community. Okay. Mm -hmm. Unless I am actively doing the work to support them and uplift them and tear down heteronormativity, I cannot, I should not, I will not call myself an ally. And I Mm -hmm. think 
that's something that's true across the board. If you are someone who considers yourself an ally for Black people, for women, for queer people, whatever it may be, but you're just, you're not taking that journey towards activism, moving towards literal action to support them. I just, I really think you need to remove the term ally from your mouth. Mm. Since we're kind of on this topic of allyship, I think something very important to discuss is performative allyship, which I am sure so many of y'all have seen in the recent months, right? Oh my God, it's it's everywhere. And so the question I pose to you as our listeners is, do you remember in the wake of George Floyd protests when every white person you knew were posting black squares on their Instagram? Yep. <laughs> or how about um, literally a week ago after the first Biden-Trump debate when people were posting the hashtag condemn white supremacy challenge? Or um, even I had people who were changing their profile pictures on Facebook to um, a BLM filter, right? And like, again, I don't, I do not want to speak for all Black people about the fact that in general, we think this is cringy and we hate it. Um, But I will say for me, these are classic examples of performative allyship. Well, first of all, let's talk about the condemned white supremacy challenge because Donovan and I are in a, a little group chat with uh, two of our close friends, Philip and Becky, and we, we, I said this to them and Philip went off. I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, guys, do you see how long this is? Like condemn white supremacy. Like it's a fad. Like, of course you condemn. You don't. Mm, I get it. I get it. Some people just don't know what to do. And I know we're going to also talk about Donovan intent versus impact later, which I'm so Mm. excited for. Um, But guilty as charged, I have done those two things. And again, without centering on myself, I will say quickly that um, as a reminder to white friends, if you want to do that, like for me, that's great. But that is like, you must do things to back that up. Sure. Post on Facebook. So your grandma knows, but you have to have to have to do the work beyond that. Totally. And yeah, Matt, thank you for um, speaking truth to your own experience. I think um, if we're not able to come to terms with things we've done in the past that have maybe been not not problematic, but maybe like didn't go far enough, uh, I think it's hard for us to kind of move forward together. And again, I don't want to speak for all Black people, um, but I will say for me, when I see those things happening on social media, it is so cringy. I hate it so much. And objectively, these are all classic examples of performative allyship. Mm. So what is that? So, okay, I'm doing the thing I hate when I'm breaking down a term, but it feels important to break down to me because I just, yes. <laughs> y'all, because like people have to know. So performative allyship, it's when someone from a privileged group in some way professes solidarity with an underrepresented group in a way that actually isn't helpful or in a way that draws attention away from the group that it's posting about. Okay. So let's break it down. Let's get specific by posting a black square for you, for your Instagram followers. And again, I am not on Instagram for a number of reasons, but by posting a black square for your followers, rather than, for example, maybe posting actual resources about ways to support black lives and ways to encourage your followers to do the same. Uh, What you're seeking to do is get those likes, is get that attention, get a pat on the back or clout rather than actively uplifting the black community. Mm. And your likes, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help my community, right? You actively tearing down white supremacy by opening your purse and donating to various Black Lives Matter causes, by calling your representatives, by working to defund the police. Um, Oh God, reading and disseminating anti-racist literature that's actually written by Black people. All of those things are things that actually help us. Mm. Okay. And because white guilt, white fragility, um, the white savior complex, because those are very real things, if you're a white listener right now, you know, you may have this natural tendency of wanting to be told that you're doing okay, um, that you're doing good. But in the end, if your allyship is performative in nature, 
you can be sure that you're actually doing the exact opposite. And we don't want that. Mm. We do not want that. I know I've had so many conversations <laughs> with my black friends and we have literal, um, running lists in our head of friends who have engaged in performative allyship. So we see you, we see what you're doing, and we will not forget it. So, and thanks for bringing that up, because especially when you mention white fragility, I will never forget this. Now, of course, I'm not a saint. I know there's stuff I've done wrong, and I, that's why I like these conversations. There was a gentleman uh, who I used to work with, who's a colleague, super, super nice guy, um, very liberal, posted on Facebook about some, you know, black cause, some resource, and someone called him in and said, hey, blah, blah, uh, you might want to phrase this this way. Or I forget how it had been done, but essentially somebody called this gentleman, we'll call him blah, blah, into the conversation. And this white liberal gentleman got defensive and says, listen, I'm just trying to do the right thing. And I feel like I don't even get a thank you. <gasps> to which. Oh, my God. To which, Donovan, of course, I exploded. Oh, my God. So I took a breath and I politely commented back. And I'm like, hi, blah, blah. Black people do not owe you a thank you. Mm-hmm. By you just doing the right thing, that that's that's it's common sense. So if you're in this for a thank you, please don't comment. Like right. that's not why we are here. Wow. So mad. That is cringy. But you know, I wow, I've never heard that story before, but that is not the first time I'm hearing of a white person who wanted a thank you for doing the work. God, that's cringy. My goodness. Wow. <laughs> I'm shook after hearing that. Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, But something else I wanted to talk about and the next kind of discovery that I've made and my thoughts regarding how to be a good ally versus a bad ally um, is a little bit related to performative allyship. And it's this idea of intent versus impact. So I think in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder, what I witnessed on social media, um, there were some helpful responses to it, some sharing of resources about um, ways to, who to donate money to, you know, and then there were some truly unhelpful, harmful responses. In particular, I'm thinking of um, both, you know, white people on my timeline, black people even, who had turned her into a meme and it didn't sit right with my spirit. And so I'm actually, I'm going to share with you some examples of what I've seen. And, you know, maybe you are someone who shared one of these things. God, I hope not. Um, but I just, I want to talk about the harm that this causes. Mm-hmm. So here are a couple of examples. Someone tweeted, my name is Junie B. Jones and the B stands for Brianna Taylor killers need to be locked up. Mm. Yeah. hundred okay. um, percent. Another one. It's a picture of Arthur. It's like an Arthur meme. Um, and I'm guessing these are the lyrics to the theme song. It says, and I say, hey, what a wonderful kind of day where you can learn to work and play and arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. Okay. And then another one that I see, uh, this was going around on Twitter. It says, hey, everybody, just some friendly reminders. Drink plenty of water. Wash your hands regularly. Wear a mask if you go outside. Arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. Pizza boxes don't go in the recycling. All of these things serve to minimize her death, serve to make her death into a like for you, into a kind of joke. And what that does is it is so harmful to Black people reading that. So Mm -hmm. I encourage you, if you are someone who is doing that, please, please, please understand the harm that you have caused. Um, Certainly. And again, yeah. And I think the intention of these people, um, the ones who are sharing the memes, um, Their intention, I would like to believe, was in the right place, right? They were trying to raise awareness of um, the truly terrible way in which Breonna Taylor was killed. However, the impact, the impact of turning her into a meme, into memifying her, was that it caused harm to Black friends on the timeline. Of course. And I think, yeah, and I think um, Black people in this country, women in this country, and particular black women in this country, we are in just such a constant state of 
rawness that just the idea of having to make excuses for people in our life who have caused us pain uh, by saying, oh, well, you know, they had the right intention. They probably meant well. No, for me personally, I am over that and I cannot do it anymore. So yeah, we can talk about intent versus impact, but if you are, even if you have the right intention, if your impact is harmful, I have to release you. I have to. Mm, I understand that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Donovan. Um, and I, it does, it makes me just think back to that gentleman, blah, blah. And sure, the, the intention originally before he said he wanted to thank you, um, sure, might have been okay. And you can argue whether that's okay for him to stumble with intention or not. But what is certainly not okay is him or anyone just giving up or getting frustrated when the work becomes too hard or getting offended when you're called out or called in, you know, for saying something that came across as harmful. Um, so it's uh, interpretation is everything. Perception is reality. At the end of the day, it's not about, oh, I'm going to use the word. It's not about the apprentices <laughs> or the allies. It's not about centering on us. It's about the people we are uplifting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I will say, Over the past, um, God, at this point, several months, um, a big discovery I have made is just realizing which white friends in particular I need to ultimately release from my life because they no longer serve me. Maybe they did in the past, uh, but unless you are actively working to make sure that I am seen as an equal as your equal in this country, that I have the same rights as you do, that I can go about my life, go about my business, going about the world without being in danger. Unless you're fighting for those things, um, I have no purpose for you. I have no need for your friendship. Mm. And I think something I mentioned before is this idea of, um, you know, black people not being a monolith. So I can, from my own perspective, share, um, my, I guess my own response to George Floyd protests because it led to a lot of important discoveries for me that I'm still kind of unpacking. And I actually was sharing them with um, a dear friend of mine from back home who also was one of the token BIPOC people growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, there were Black people who in the wake of the protests did not did not, did not, did not want white friends reaching out to them because it felt exhausting. And it felt, um, it felt like they had to uh, relive their own pain and console their white friends in a way that felt very unuseful. Mm -hmm. Right. So they, I I just, I remember speaking to so many friends who were like, stop texting me, white people just stop, just do the work. Right. Um, I, I'm different, you know, I'm a different person. And for me, I, I need it my white friends to reach out to me. And so when to check in on me, to see how I was doing, if I needed anything, whatever it might've been. And when I had white friends that I considered, you know, near and dear to my heart, uh, when I saw when weeks and weeks and weeks were passing and they didn't reach out to me, um, not only that, not only the fact that they didn't reach out to me, but also the fact that they didn't make any kind of, meaningful social media posts to lead me into thinking that they were doing the work. Um, I realized, oh, we are, we are no longer on the same page of what is important Mm. to us. Right. And and because of that, I no longer, yeah, like I said, I no longer had any reason to keep them in my life. And I feel like, unfortunately, that was an important discovery for me to kind of have. Yeah. I, you know, I'm so happy you bring this up. And again, it goes to the monolith conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Although I will say for a hot second, um, uh, you know, and then we'll, we'll go, go back to this very important subject um, that <laughs> one of my favorite moments from the past uh, when we were getting ready for this episode, sorry, ready for the podcast. And I said, Donovan, like, you know who, so I, I attended school at the same time Quinta Brunson did. And I asked you about Black Lady Sketch Show. I'm like, you've seen this show, right? On HBO. And your rebuttal was, you were so mad. You were like, have you watched Rent? 
Like <laughs> that's what you said to me. So yes, I, like, I did. But I, but again, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be monolithic. I'm like, I don't want to assume that every black person has watched Get Out and Black Panther. Um, so, but it was very funny. To, yes, <laughs> but that being said, um. If you're a black person who hasn't seen Get Out, hasn't seen Black Panther, I am judging you. It is for the culture. What are you doing? That is not acceptable. <laughs> no, we're not monoliths, but your ass needs to have seen those movies. Goodbye. <laughs> and and that's something really cool to talk about as well, because I was the kind of kid that that didn't... Sure, I loved Judy Garland as a kid. Many stereotypes mm-hmm. I held true. But I, I didn't watch a lot of you know gay film until, you know, even after I came out. And now only recently have I started to know a bit more of my history. So I love that that balance. Um, I also love what you say about that because, again, the whole not being a monolith, because um, there is a, a guy that I did a show with a few years back uh, who is Black and posted on Facebook. It was when the whole... Like, oh, if you've done theater in the past, share a fo- share a memory of us. Mm-hmm. And at yeah. the time, I had the same feeling as, as you. I'm like, this is not important right now. But, mm. but he, because of course everyone was doing this. This is like a month or two ago. And he, as a black individual, put up like, hey guys, I get it. I get what you're all saying. But at the same time, this is social media. And if you and especially if black friends want to post if you have a memory of us you know don't shame anyone for having this kind of um levity but i but i think that's so important what you say about even the reaching out too because i i felt like i felt like shit after i reached out to some people some black friends because i'm like oh man they probably didn't want to hear from me but it i'm not saying i i'm happy for the validation from you but that's it's it's so good to keep all these things in mind um, that, that the black community is not monolithic at all. Yeah. And, and I guess my hope is um, hopefully, you know, your black friends well enough to know what they need in the moment. And if they are someone who didn't need you to reach out to them, I just, I hope you are improving your worth. This is for the collective listener. I hope you're uh, doing what you can to prove your worth as a friend by um, showing to them, showing to them that they matter. You know, it it's crazy how in the wake of George Floyd's death and the protests that erupted around the country because of it, um, how many discoveries I think a lot of us made about what was important to us, about how we felt about things. But something that I thought what felt so perplexing to me in the moment was not only the sense of performative allyship that I was seeing on my timeline, it was um the fact that more often than not, those people who were engaged in performative allyship were the same people who were causing pain mm. to Black people in the past. So something I have said before, I will say it again, is before you devote yourself to anti-racist practice, you can't move forward before you first confront the harm that you have caused to your Black friends, to your BIPOC friends in the past. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think something that's so hard uh, for white people to hear is that you have to trust that you have caused us harm at some point. You know, you have to acknowledge that you have to accept it um, because you live in a position of privilege. It is likely more likely than not that you have caused us harm. Um, you've made mistakes in the past and honestly, you will probably continue to make mistakes. But that being said, there's no way for us to move forward together if you're not actually coming to terms with your past. And I think, yeah, that was just such a super important discovery for me to have. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, a, a question I wanted to ask you in a more micro setting, what have you experienced on a personal level with this great allyship versus not so great allyship mm. um, from theaters in particular for yourself? Ah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great question. You know, it's funny. I, um, I guess it's great for me that, um, the examples of good allyship stick out of my head more so than the examples of bad allyship, specifically in the world of theater. Mm. Uh, and something I mentioned, it might've been episode one, maybe, I don't know, a couple of episodes ago, who knows? Um, I mentioned a, white theater director who asked me, a Black artist, to work for them for free in the name of social justice. And I just remember 
being so shook by that ask and not knowing if I was um, overreacting or anything. So as I do, as one often does, uh, I took to social media about it and I made a Facebook post. And my Facebook posts are usually, Matt knows, they're usually very colorful. (laughs) Would you say that that's a fair assessment? (laughs) Oh man. But yeah, so I made a Facebook post about it. um, And after that happened, I had a handful of white theater artists who reached out to me privately. And they asked if um, they could reach out to this person on my behalf. And that was something that really stuck with me. And the fact that they were saying it absolutely was not my job to correct that person's problematic behavior. Mm. And they were totally right. And I'm so happy they helped me realize that. Um, because I don't, I don't have the time. And number one, I don't have the energy. Number two, and white people, it is your job to collect your problematic cousins. And that's that on that. There it is. My favorite term. <laughs> Matt, get your cousins. I don't have time. Cringe. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Um, but I think the final discovery that I want to share with you today, maybe the final, who knows? I talk a lot. So recently I was teaching a theater class to a group of college students and it came, this was uh, maybe about a month ago, and it came out that the majority of them felt like they weren't doing enough as allies. Mm. And, you know, I I appreciated their honesty in the moment and it, fair. I, I feel that. I have definitely felt that before. Sometimes I still feel that way. And I think a big discovery I have made over the past several months is that everybody's activism or everybody's journey towards activism looks different. And those differences are totally, totally okay. Yeah. Right. So you, you may not be the person who is able to be on the front lines of protests. Maybe you can't do that for whatever reason, but if you're not doing that, maybe you are phone banking or texting for hours on end. Okay. Or maybe if you can't do that, maybe you're in a position of financial privilege, or maybe you're not, who knows? And that has allowed you to donate to several social justice causes that you feel passionately about. Uh, Or maybe you're an organizer who has been fundraising to make sure your underrepresented group is able to operate in a safe and equitable manner. Mm. And maybe, maybe on top of all of those things, you are currently working on devoting serious time and energy to encouraging difficult conversations with your Trump loving family members. Right. So we don't, we don't all have to be Angela Davis's. Uh, We don't even all have to be leaders and activists, uh, but we do have to take action to make anything change in this country and our world in this industry. And I think um, using social media as a platform to um, disseminate info, to uh, let your followers know what you believe clicking that share button, whatever it may be. Those things are cute. They're they're a step. They're a start in the right direction, um, but they're not, and they can never be enough. Right. The be all to end all. Wow. Thank you. I, and I, again, I, I thank you because you, I have to thank you because you very easily, because I know how busy you are, you very easily could have said no to this podcast. Um, and I, and I was, I was, you know, I was almost afraid to ask you because of how busy I thought you, you were going to be. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't imagine doing this with anybody else. So just, no, just thank you, you know, and I'll just ignore all the mean things you send to me. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, man. I'm so happy to have you, my Leo bro, as a partner on this, this wild, wild journey. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing, one or two things I just want to, recap and, and and close out with two fellow you know white friends no matter what it is find the ways in which you want to go about your your apprenticeship um mm-hmm. you know like i know for me that my goal is to give space like that has become kind of my artistic goal among other things mm-hmm. um you know also bear in mind that complacency is complicity uh it is not mm-hmm. enough to be you know I'm not racist. You know, I, I, I love this term anti-racism um, that has very much come to the full front this year. Um, and Donovan, I, I have to thank you also because of this incredible little thing 
that happened. Um, I think as soon as George Floyd, I won't say passed, was killed by police, I I probably waited a few hours because I wanted to listen. And then I put up something and I, I think I wrote on Facebook, essentially like, hi, black friends, please, like, what are some resources? What, what can we do? Which, frankly, you know, was not right. And I love that you had the, the courage and the, you know, thing to say, Matt, I understand what you're doing, but this causes harm. It's time for white people to do the work. Um, mm-hmm. It has always been time for white people to do the work. So, you know, that's just thank you for that. Yeah, that's that's such a great example. Oh, I should have used that example uh, when explaining intent versus impact, because Matt, I, I think what correct me if I'm wrong, but when I saw that status, what I witnessed you doing is you wanting to kind of um, get it uh, from the horse's mouth, right? Yeah. Like go directly to the source um, in finding the most useful resources. I, am I correct and understand that? Totally. And that much was clear. However, yeah, exactly what you said by putting the brunt of the work on your Black friends to do the work rather than you. Um, that adds so much more emotional labor and unnecessary burdens to them when we already have so much going on. So thank, yeah, thank you for um, that revelation. Oh, yeah, of course. No, thank you. You know, speaking of, you know, the white friends um, that I, speaking of the white <laughs> friends. The white. So, you know, three of my very close white friends and I, uh, we've been texting each other back and forth about black podcasts to consume, black books to consume, black media to consume, and even perhaps making an accountability group. Um, not so much like, I mean, you could do a book club if you wanted, but this is a way for white friends to, you know, hold ourselves accountable without having to be performative on social media. Mm. You know, um, my best friend, Alex, who was instrumental in, in helping provide a voice um, to this podcast as well with his feedback. So thank you, bud. You know, he'll text me stuff all the time. This is the podcast I found, or this is what my students are bringing up, which is hilarious because his eighth grade students bring up the debate. And all that other stuff, <gasps> and he can't. Jen's, they know what's up, y'all. We do, on. yes. But he can't say like he literally can't give his opinion, and the kids know it. It's so funny. Wow. Um, they like they say, "Don't you want to say something?" He goes, "Of course, I want to say something, but I can't say anything." <laughs> but you know, anyway. So that's an important thing for accountability. But even more important is you know, too often I find, and I am guilty of this. Um, thankfully. And hopefully not so much with the Black Lives Matter movement, but with a lot of the other things I believe in. Um, you know, after the Parkland shooting um, back in whatever, however many years ago that was, we we as a society, I feel, tend to let a lot of our causes fall by the wayside after mm. the initial passion and after the initial outcry. So, yeah. like, I, guilty. When is the last time I contact, contacted my reps about gun violence and gun reform? Like. I haven't. I've been contacting them about other stuff, but I haven't spoken to them about that. So I think as the year carries on, we must, must make this part of who we are. Where's the outcry? Right. You know, we've moved on to the next thing. So yeah, that's that's such a good point. Yeah, certainly. Donovan, I wanted to ask, you know, and this is another kind of meta moment. Can we talk a little bit about the microaggressions and the fact that I like wanted to bring up one or two and what your response to that was. Cause I thought that was, <laughs> yeah. was, it was great. And it was yet another learning moment. So even just today getting ready for this episode. Yeah, totally. So um, for the listeners, the question that Matt wanted to pose was um, are there any microaggressions I've done that um, I'm not aware of essentially? And is that an appropriate question for white friends to ask their BIPOC friends. And my response was, no, it is not appropriate. (laughs) Not at all. However, I'm really glad that you um, posed the question in the first place, because I think this is just such a teachable moment. Uh, And so hopefully as listeners, you can learn from this also. So um, again, from my perspective only, in asking your BIPOC friends or friends from any underrepresented group um, for you to 
for them to list out your own microaggressions that you have done, that forces them to relive painful incidents, Mm. painful moments in their life, right? And again, it makes them do the work rather than you doing the meaningful soul searching that needs to happen. Right. And Donovan, for for those that are apprentices, God, it's so much easier to say one word now rather than those on a journey to allyship. Um, For apprentices, uh, what is a microaggression? Would you mind? Yes. If we look at um, racism as being this kind of umbrella term with many different levels to it, there are some forms of racism that are blatant, that are overt, someone wearing a clan hood, for instance, right? Someone, a white person using the N-word. All those things are undeniably harmful and dangerous. A microaggression similarly is harmful, similarly is racist, but it actually works on a more subversive level. To give some examples, when you as a white person say that your black friend was only cast in a role because they are black, rather than on the base of their talent. Um, When you assume, when you make a comment about your black friend's um, foundation color, saying that it looks like literal shit, right? Uh, Those are, those are some examples that I have personally witnessed in um, our career path of microaggressions. Rest assured that though you may not be a, um, white supremacist, a KKK member engaging in a microaggression is still a harmful racist experience. Got it. And thanks for that, Donovan. And I know that we have, you know, uh, these microaggressions and that would be God, so traumatizing to have someone say that your foundation looks like shit. Um, but are there also other ones that are even more subtle, be that in the entertainment sphere or anywhere else? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess to that, I will say, yes, there are uh, varying degrees of um, subversion, I guess, or um, how veiled the racism is. Um, At the end of the day, it is all harmful. So things like, uh, oh, you talk so white, or um, uh, oh, we all bleed the same blood. Um, My race is homo sapiens. Real quote from a guy I went out with once. Yeah. Or, um, says says something racist followed by, it's just a joke. You know, um, some of these things, and again, depending on who the recipient is, we're all going to have different responses to it. So some of these things might be a little bit more veiled. Um, yeah, a little bit more subversive, but it, it, it's absolutely all harmful, all microaggressions. Certainly. Well, thank you, Donovan. Um, you're not still hanging out with that guy, are you? Absolutely not. Are you crazy? <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> great. All right. Well, I think this wraps up this first part of the episode. Again, I know this is a lot for you to talk about and go through. And I just, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for this. Absolutely. And I will say for our listeners, just being fully honest, we did not expect that we were going to split this episode into um, two. We kind of thought we'd tackle um, our own journeys um, in one episode, but then here we are recording and we just find out there's so much to unpack. There's so much to digest and discuss and talk about here. So thank you for tuning in and listening to my journey. And Matt, I can't wait to tackle yours next. Oh, it'll be fun. It'll be glitter and be gay. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot wait. Yeah. All right. Donovan, cue the outro music. Damn.